Hi, you're here at the second location. But don't be scared. You're not alone. It's your girl, Holly. And I'm here to tell you about the murder of a woman that went unsolved for almost 40 years. Well, it's still unsolved today, but there have been major breaks in the case recently. Not only is the murder unsolved, but the victim's identity was unknown until only recently. The introduction of genealogical DNA testing has revolutionized the whole crime-solving industry in truly amazing ways. For people interested in true crime, this is really the golden age of solving cold cases. And not only are cases being solved, but John and Jane Doe's are getting their names back, both giving these people dignity and recognition in death, but also moving us all a step closer to solving their murders. While in some cases, learning the identity of a Doe appears to have not made much of a difference in solving the murder, that is not the case for the Lady of the Dunes of Massachusetts. Because when we learned her name, Ruth Marie Terry, we also learned that she was recently married to a con man who was the main suspect in the disappearance of his second wife and stepdaughter. Yeah, that's right. This poor lady may have been married to a murderer. So, I'm not sure, folks, but I think we have a suspect. And let's get to it. This week, we are talking about Ruth Marie Terry. She hailed from Tennessee, and when she was just 37 years old, she was found murdered. And until she got her name back on October 31st, 2022, she was a Jane Doe, known only as the Lady of the Dunes. On March 26, 1974, the body of a nude woman was found in the Race Point Dunes in Provincetown, Massachusetts. The woman had been dead for some time between 10 days and three weeks. She was lying outside in July. So let's just say decomposition had set in and the insect activity on the body was pretty intense. The woman was lying face down on a beach blanket and her body was positioned on one side of the blanket, not in the middle of the blanket. So it looked as if someone had been laying beside her before her death, perhaps her murderer. Investigators noted two sets of footprints leading up to the body. And there were no signs of a struggle and there weren't any defensive wounds on the women, on the woman's body. The victim had either been surprised or had known her killer. Under the victim's head, there was a pair of folded Wrangler jeans and a folded blue bandana. Her long auburn hair was pulled back into a ponytail and was secured with a gold flecked elastic band. The blanket, jeans, bandana, and hair tie were the only items found with the body. There was no swimming suit or undergarments or blouse with the victim and no shoes. It was estimated that she was between 5'6 and 5'8, so that's a taller lady, and she weighed 140 pounds with an athletic build, so she's very slim. Her age was estimated at between 25 and 40 years old. The victim was missing both of her hands and one forearm. The cause of death was blunt force trauma. The one side of her head had been completely crushed. It is believed that she had been hit with an entrenching tool. An entrenching tool is something that comes in many different designs. Sometimes it's like a small foldable shovel. And other times, like military ones, it's like a pick on one side and a shovel at a right angle on the other side. I mean, these shovels are commonly used by campers and your outdoorsy types. I don't know exactly how they decided that the entrenching tool was the murder weapon because it wasn't like there was an entrenching tool at the crime scene, but it was thought that this was the tool that was used to kill her. The victim had been almost decapitated, and almost all sources say that the near decapitation was due to strangulation. 
I have to assume that a ligature was used as I have no idea how someone could strangle someone manually with their hands and almost decapitate them. So this murder had to be planned as a ligature was brought by the killer and the entrenchment tool. And the entrenchment tool just strikes me as odd. I almost feel like its presence would raise questions or suspicion while you're on the beach. If you're just beaching it and sunbathing, why the hell bring a shovel? If I go to catch some rays with a friend and they show up with a military-style shovel, I'm getting the hell out of there. Although most sources say it was strangulation that caused the de near decapitation, I wonder if the shovel-like tool was used to injure her neck, causing deep cuts. And I, I just don't know because I didn't see the autopsy report. But the, the fact that they say that the weapon of death was a entrenchment tool and that she was nearly decapitated, it just makes one's mind wonder about these things. I said earlier that the victim was missing both of her hands and one forearm, but she was also missing multiple teeth that had been extracted near the time of her death. But even though she was missing multiple teeth, her autopsy showed that she had extensive and very expensive dental work, including eight gold crowns in her remaining teeth. I mean expensive. Like we're talking $5,000 to $10,000 worth of dental work in the 1970s. So, I mean, I, I think today you'd be looking at what would that be like seventy to hundred thousand dollars worth of dental work when you look at a picture of ruth marie terry the woman we now know that's who was lying on that beach blanket who we didn't know who she was for 40 years when you look at a picture of her she has a truly beautiful smile and absolutely perfect looking perfect looking teeth which masses matches this description of extensive dental work i mean i don't know what ruth's teeth always looked like i just know that they have a, a smile that's that beautiful and the teeth are all, you know, just, it's like Scooby-Doo teeth. It's all absolutely perfect that, um, you know, a dentist had a hand in that. It was widely believed that the victim's hands were removed to prevent her from being identified through fingerprints, fingerprints, or as some people say, fingerprints. Mm. Yes, those people, aren't they terrific? But anyway, it was widely believed that her hands had been removed to prevent her from being identified through fingerprints, which means that the killer thought that the victim's prints were on record somewhere. Now, who gets fingerprinted? Well, people that are arrested. That's the largest database right there. And this led to speculation that the victim had a criminal ties or at least had been arrested before. But there are other times that people are fingerprinted military people are in some states fingerprint state employees and sometimes when you're licensed for certain types of jobs you have to be fingerprinted but the idea that the victim had criminal ties really caught on because it was the boston area during the bloody reign of whitey bulger and whitey was the type of asshole that would remove his victim's teeth and hands to prevent identification of a body but while he was a logical suspect now that we know ruth's identity it's unlikely that Whitey was involved in her murder as she had no ties to the Boston criminal underworld. I want to point out the victim was also missing one of her forearms and they really focused on the missing hands because of the missing fingerprints angle and then they thought criminal angle she'd been arrested before but I think what is striking to me is the missing forearm which just makes one think was there a tattoo or birthmark on that forearm that would make the killer think that her forearm had to be removed to prevent identification it just makes you wonder during ruth's autopsy um, evidence of a absolutely brutal sexual assault was found but not the kind that you usually hear about she had been insulted with an object it was most likely a board of wood and it was believed that the assault occurred 
after death. I honestly don't even know how to analyze that beyond just saying that is truly horrific. Could it be a sexual sadist with performance issues? Or could this be a murder that is completely devoid of sexual motivation, but the killer is trying to make it look like a sexual attack? You really can't tell. She was found in 1974. And over the next 46 years, there were many theories about who this unknown lady could be, including a pretty solid theory that she could have been this woman who had escaped from jail in 1974 and who was never heard from again. And you can look her up um, at different places. Uh, I'll say her name again at the end because I can't think of it. It's not coming to my mind right now. But I'm not going to go over all these theories because we all know who she is now. And the investigation of her murder has a new focus. So there's no more, like, it's not really worthwhile to keep going into who could she have been? You know, we know who she is. But, um, so we know who she is. And now let's, let's find who killed her is the, the path you take. When a doe was a child... Once you find out the child's name, then figuring out who the murderer is is fairly straightforward. For a child that was never reported missing, then most likely the culprit is a close family member. Now, of course, this isn't always the case, but in general, it holds true, in my opinion. And of course, my opinion means less than nothing. But when the doe is an adult, learning the identity, per, unknown person's identity doesn't generally lead us directly to the killer. Think of all those former does that were living the nomadic lifestyle or murdered while hitching. Once we know who they are, if they were picked up by a driver, their name is entirely worthwhile pursuit to find out who they are. The people deserve it. The families deserve it. I'm just saying, when you find out who they are, it doesn't always get you right there to the murderer. You know, the victim's name doesn't clear up much other than resolution and peace. But Ruth Marie Terry... It's a real rarity because her husband, well, her husband just might be a serial killer. Yeah, it wasn't the mob or Whitey Bulger that killed the Lady of the Dunes. Most likely it was her husband, a longtime con man with many names and a frightening past. Once upon a time in the late 1950s, early 1960s, he was known as Raul. Raul, ooh, I love it. Guy Rockwell the owner of an antique store run out of the lower floor of a three-story house near their waterfront in the Seattle area. He owned the building and he paid very little for it as it was run down with missing windows and mismatched siding on the outside facade. It looked like a disaster, but on the inside, it was filled with carefully curated antiques. Their walls were covered with stained glass windows. The first floor held all manner of antiques, paintings, furniture, rare coins, African art. Raul, Raul. I gotta really get used to that. Guy Rockwell specialized in Ashanti weights. These weights had once been used as counterbalances to weigh the precious items of their day. You know, like gold, silver, and of course, salt. Um, kind of funny to think of salt as being precious. But as a, you know, it was truly a different time. Full of bland food. So salt was precious. But it wasn't just the curiosities that brought in the customers. The owner himself was the major draw that brought in the wealthy ladies into the store. Now, he was always called by his full name, Raul Guy Rockwell, because he's a faux fancy snob, and that's the type of ass that expects everyone to call him by three damn names. But I'm just going to call him Rockwell. Rockwell was boastful, claiming to have been from France, 
which was a lie, just like most of everything that he said about himself. He claimed to have attended USC on an academic scholarship and served in the war. Both were lies. He had an ear infection that prevented him from serving in the military. And I just want to go on record and saying that's some hell of an ear infection that could get you out of WW2. But antibiotics weren't what they were today. Also, I think ear infections might have been a way to dodge having to go to World War II <laughs> back then. Um, Rockwell never attended USC. It was just another lie. And his entire, Rockwell's entire persona is based on lies. He actually was an adopted son of a Polish immigrant. He never graduated high school, and he wasn't a war hero. But the truth wouldn't have impressed the fancy ladies. So he created an image that would. Despite entertaining all these ladies every night inside the antique store, Rockwell was married to his second wife, Manzanita, a pretty red-headed 39-year-old that went by the nickname Manzi. Manzi had three daughters, and when she abruptly left her husband of decades for Rockwell, she left behind two of her younger daughters, but she took her oldest daughter, Dolores, with her. I'm going to be honest, I don't love that about Manzi. I will tread lightly because it seems like Rockwell murders her a few years after marriage, but I don't like that she left behind two daughters. Now, Dolores was a lot like her mom. She was also a beautiful redhead, and the 18-year-old was an excited freshman at the University of Washington. The married couple were having some financial troubles, and Dolores tried to help by working and putting herself through college and taking care of her own expenses. Like her mom, Dolores was a hard worker. Dolores had a full-time job that she maintained while she was a full-time student. Manzi, Dolores, and Rockwell all lived together on the second floor of the antique store. Manzi worked at a local bank in the daytime, and as the couple did not have a car, Manzi had to take two buses to and from work, and she was a hard worker. After the tiresome bus travel and a full day at the bank, Manzi went home and put in a shift at the antique store in the evening. Now, Rockwell didn't open the store until 6 p.m. It's at a time that Manzi would have liked to have been family time, you know, like most people, but that's not how Rockwell rolled. I don't know what this asshole did all day, but it wasn't work, you know, like his wife. Manzi would work in the store as long as she could stand it, because it got a little bit gross in there. All the wealthy society ladies didn't make it much of a secret that they were interested in Manzi's husband. And Rockwell, ever an asshole, he flirted right back, simultaneously hurting and humiliating his wife. Or wife. He was just going for a fucking twofer there. Rawl said he only did this for the business, that he had no romantic interest in this woman. But Manzi wasn't so sure. Personally, I say, get into another business, dude. This low-rent but highbrow faux antique man-whoring isn't in a business I would want my partner in. Just take up welding instead. Now, Manzi knew that Rockwell was willing to run off with a married woman. I mean, that's what they had done together. Sometimes when you look back, and you realize that red-hot love affair wasn't all that unique, and you're a cheater, and you ran off with a cheater, and now that cheater is the person that you want to be loyal to you, that's tough. And that's where Manzi found herself, looking for loyalty from a snake. The financial pressures, combined with Rockwell's fawning female fan base, created some serious tension in the relationship. Arguments became more frequent. Neighbors noticed that a wealthy-looking older blonde lady draped in furs and driving a humongous, it would have to be, in the 1960s, convertible Cadillac began to stop in the antique shop around midnight, several nights a week. It's not looking good for Rockwell and Manzi's marriage. It's not looking good. 
But then Mansi and Dolores go missing. Oh, things park up for Rockwell there, it seems like. By the end of March 1960, Rockwell was claiming, end of March, beginning of April, I think April 1st, we can't really pinpoint the exact day on this, Rockwell was claiming that Mansi had abandoned him and that Dol Dolores had left with her mother. To each person, Rockwell tells a slightly different story. But all versions contain the lie that Manzi had drained all of their bank accounts and had made such a mess of their financial records that poor Rockwell was struggling to file their taxes. Manzi's boss was shocked. Manzi had worked at the bank for years. She was a dependable employee, and yet she had quit without a word to her employer. But Manzi, she'd ghosted before. She left her first husband without a, husband without a word and left her two of her daughters with him. And she didn't contact her husband for six months until she finally called her ex-husband ex to make arrangements to visit her younger daughters. Keep in mind that Dolores was also missing. And like before, when she left with her mother before, she isn't just a kid following her beloved mom anymore. Dolores is 18 and look, looking forward to her own future. She had a full-time job that she left without giving notice and she was, was enrolled in college that she was paying for herself. Dolores was an adult and Dolores had just registered for the next quarter of classes and she had been excited as she got into every class that she wanted but then she tell you know she failed to turn up for the new semester and never withdrew from school and this is when Mansi's ex-husband raises the alarm and he reports his ex-wife and daughter is missing with Mansi and Dolores gone Rockwell's neighbors noted how depressed Rockwell had become and that he drank heavily and rarely opened the store Within a, I mean, really didn't have Manzi there to do most of the work probably anymore. But anyway, within a couple of months, Manzi and Dolores' disappearance, Rockwell files for divorce, citing abandonment. The divorce, of course, goes unchallenged and, you know, uncontested, so it's granted in July of 1960. And within three days of the divorce, Rockwell had remarried. Yep, that's just how devastated he was that his wife went missing April 1st. Then he remarried on July 29th three days after the divorce was final. Can we all just say too soon? Rockwell's new wife was a 40-year-old divorcee who also owned an antique store, and she held from a wealthy and well-known Seattle family. Rockwell had auctioned off the contents of his own store because he was closing up shop in preparation for a long honeymoon trip with his new bride. But then Rockwell heard of an amazing investment opportunity that just couldn't be missed. A seller in Canada had several rare First Nation artifacts for sale, and the price was shockingly low. Only $8,000. Rockwell wanted to buy these treasures, and he had already lined up a buyer that was willing to pay him $16,000 for the artifacts. I mean, this means he could double his investment almost instantly. But Rockwell needed cash to make the transaction. And remember... He claimed that Manzi had taken all of the money when she left. So Rockwell had no funds, but he was able to convince his new in-laws to loan him $8,000. And this guy was so smooth that he actually had the in-laws thinking that the whole loan was their idea and a good investment. And his mother-in-law threw in an extra $2,000 just in case Rockwell needed a little extra to complete the sale. Rockwell feebly protested, but he quickly cashed the check. Once that check clears, Rockwell declares that there is another buyer interested in the artifacts. Well, no wonder you're selling them at half their value. But anyway, he has to leave immediately to complete the sale. He told his new wife that he would be back in Seattle by August 6th or 7th. And he, he explained that 
because he was worried about customs and customs fees and the legality of bringing these items out of Canada, he was going to return by a rented fishing boat to just to just totally avoid customs all over, which his wife and in-laws just accepted, even though this asshole just admitted that he was planning on smuggling antiquities into the country illegally. They're like, okay, when he when he got back stateside, he was going to go off on that trip with his new wife, a trip on a yacht. Rockwell actually claimed that his friends had bought him the yacht. And these people, his wife and his in-laws, they actually believe this story. And I have absolutely no idea why. It makes no sense. This guy can't come up with $8,000 for a business transaction, but he has a yacht. And who just buys a friend a yacht? No one. No one. Seriously, if you have a bridge you want to sell, you should get in, talk with, get in contact with these in-laws. Because, well... You know why. They're buyers. Sometimes it's hard to feel bad for the victims of a con man. It's their own greed that blinds them to the obvious. I mean, they barely knew this guy. Their daughter didn't even know his family or his friends. And they had been married for six days when he left with their money. His ex-wife was missing. He'd only been divorced for three days before he remarried and promptly borrowed $10,000 off his in-laws. These are red flags, people. Red flags. Red flags. Oh, yeah, I was supposed to say, that $10,000 in 1960 money, 10000 1960s, is about $100,000 now. What rational person would give somebody they basically don't know $100,000? A gullible person. That's also greedy. So Rockwell goes to Canada, but then August 6th comes and Rockwell doesn't return. But his, his wife and his in-laws are not suspicious. They were worried about this asshole. They thought he was carrying around a buttload of money. What if he'd been robbed and hurt? They didn't realize that they had been robbed. Jeez. They wanted to contact other people close to Rockwell to see if they had heard from him recently. But then suddenly they realized the only person they know who has any connection to Rockwell is his divorce lawyer. Yeah, his divorce lawyer. So they contact the lawyer and the lawyer gets the police involved. When you can't name a single family member or friend of your husband, just let me tell you something. You rushed the engagement. The police begin investigating, and there is no evidence of Rockwell ever flying into Canada like he had planned, and like he told his wife that he was going to. And the lawyer learned that Rockwell had cashed the check from his in-laws and withdrew almost all of the funds from his bank account. Rockwell had sold all of his store's inventory, borrowed money from his in-laws, and drained his bank accounts. It looks to me like he's preparing to flee town. The police had to explain to the bride and her parents what should have been obvious, that they had been scammed. And just imagine that realization. What you mean, that guy that my daughter just met and married and I gave assloads of money to isn't going to take our middle-aged divorced daughter's ass away on a yacht ride? No, no, he's not. And you know why? Because that never happens. It's going to get even more embarrassing for the new bride when a wealthy married woman comes forward with a story about how she and Rockwell had been having an affair for years. And after Manzi left Rockwell, Rockwell convinced this woman to run off to Portugal with him. And apparently this trip was also going to be, you know, yacht related too. These ladies, they hear yacht and they're like, yeah... We'll do it. You said yacht. Keyword there. It's like you say yacht to these ladies and they lose all their senses. 
Get a grip, girls. No one is taking you on a yacht trip. Just face it. When Rockwell was supposed to be flying to Canada to seal the deal on that antique sale, he actually flew with this married woman to San Francisco, where Rockwell promptly abandons this woman at a hotel and he disappears. The rich lady has to go back to her wealthy husband after leaving him to run away with this weirdo to go on a yacht. And the cuckold actually takes her back. <laughs> why are all these middle-aged ladies, why do they think guys with yachts want to snatch them up? It's beyond me. Your yacht days are gone, girls. Let it go. I realized that I couldn't get my ass on a yacht when I was young and hot. I sure as shit isn't happening now. Just give yourself a reality check. A solid reality check. If it sounds too good to be true, it is. If it involves a yacht, it's not happening. I don't have much sympathy for victims, the victims of Rockwell's financial scams because I'm reserving my sympathy for the women that he murdered. But these people are like, yacht? Yeah, I'll go with ya. Yeah, take my parents' money. You got a yacht, but you need money? That makes sense. Ah! <laughs> but while investigating, so there's a, there's, there's more to this. While they're investigating the Rockwell's financial scams, the police begin to investigate the disappearance of Dolores and Manzi. About time. Dolores' dad didn't report them as missing until September when Dolores didn't show up for her fall classes, and he heard, hadn't heard from either his ex-wife or daughter since March. Okay, so that guy sat on that for a lot longer than I like, but I get it. Manzi had disappeared before, so her husband wasn't that suspicious, but young Dolores had just registered for her new college classes and was looking forward to her future. So red flags when she doesn't show up for those fall classes. So Mansi, she actually visited her younger daughters every month, but when she missed her April visit, the ex-husband, he calls and he talks to Rockwell and Rockwell told him that Mansi had left him and taken Dolores with her. Considering her earlier abandonment of her ex-husband, I mean, he believed Rockwell, but the police have started to notice that Rockwell seems to tell everybody different versions of the story about how Mansi left him. And the details don't match up. Did she take her stuff? Did she leave her stuff? Was he supposed to ship her stuff somewhere? Did she leave from here? Was she going to this place? Was she going to that place? It never matches. And some of the claims that Rockwell makes, such as Manzi, Manzi taking all of his money, are actually proven to be false. Rockwell is caught in a lie. Manzi didn't take all the couple's money before she disappeared. Sure, Rockwell didn't have any money, but all withdrawals over the last five months had been done by Rockwell himself. There's just no evidence of a large withdrawal done by Manzi. And after Manzi and Dolores disappeared, the neighbors noticed some odd things going on over at the closed antique store, including a terrible odor coming from the house, which Rockwell blamed on some bad crab meat. Here's a little foreshadowing, folks. It wasn't bad crab meat. Also, the septic tank was briefly unsealed, and then freshly cemented shut. Okay, just gonna say it, it ain't looking good for our missing ladies. The police go to the apartment on the second floor above the antique store where the family had lived, and they find that the ladies had left virtually all their things behind, including purses, wallets, their makeup, perfumes, toiletries, all their clothes, shoes. Everything was still there. And only a single item of clothing was missing for each woman. They had disappeared, literally, with only the clothes on their backs. The ladies had vanished. And now Rockwell was missing, too. And there weren't any leads on where the ladies were, until two severed legs were found in the Columbia River. The legs had come from the same woman, 
who had been about 40 years old, they estimated, and about 5'5", and weighed about 130 pounds, so a fit gal. The legs had feet that were a little, I'll say misshapen, but it, it just came from years of wearing shoes that were probably a little too small and perhaps a little too pointy-toed. And the person who the legs belonged to had the blood type of O. Mansi had O-type blood, as did Dolores. But Mansi also matched the age, height, weight description associated with the severed legs. Mansi often wore pointy shoes, and her ex-husband ex recognized the feet as Mansi's. A close friend of Rockwell and Mansi was an anthropologist, and he looked at the legs, and immediately he thought they were Mansi's. He noted that while Mansi was not a heavy-set woman at all, but her legs were much thicker than the rest of her body and not particularly shapely. Um, embarrassingly, I mean, I hate to talk about a deceased person this way, especially when they're found and they're identified by their legs. Her several legs were identified based on her thick calves and ankles and her uniquely shaped toes and bunions. I mean, it got a little cruel sounding. Mansi was described as having piano legs, or as I call them, cigar legs, you know, when they're a little bit tan. And that is when the leg is just straight, like the knee, calf, and ankle, all the same diameter. I have the opposite problem. I mean, my calves are huge, and uh, I can barely fit them into a pair of stretch pants. And if I am ever identified by Mike Ankle, I will fucking haunt somebody. I mean, think of something else where you're like, I recognize that freckle. Oh, she has that ingrown hair on her big toe. I don't care. But don't, please don't let it be like, oh, ugh. Cigar leg season, I don't want to hear it. Based on the legs, the Seattle police get a warrant to search the entire building that held both the antiques, antique store and the apartment. And this is what they find in the kitchen. The walls were stained with type O blood. And the stairwell from the kitchen to the attic had blood smeared along the walls and dripped under the stairs. A hair that microscopically matched those from Dolores' hairbrush was found on the underside of the step alongside a dyed red hairs that matched those from Mansi's hairbrush. Now we know this is, mm, this hair stuff's not what we used to think it was, but today we could use DNA testing on that. Back then they did the microscopic stuff, doesn't mean crap, but they are red hairs and both of the women were, did have red hair. Fibers from a sweater were matted into spots of blood on the steps and it looked like someone had drugged and carried Mansi and Dolores, you know, their bleeding bodies up into that attic. If the stairwell sounds kind of gruesome for you, you're not going to want to hear about the attic, so you might want to tune out here for a moment. Um, smears, droplets, stains, and pools of blood were all around. Only a half-assed attempt to cover them with rugs and stained fabric remnants had been made. Blue paint covered some stained spots, but it didn't matter. The blood was loss was so extreme, it had seeped through the floors into the ceilings below. Blood, human tissue, and bone, bone fragments were found. Yeah, blood, human tissue, and bone fragments. Someone had been dissected in that attic. The blood type was all O, which was both Mansi and Dolores' blood type, and a tooth from a 20-year-old female was found. Finally, the septic tank was drained, and lots of small body parts were found, including parts of a uterus, finger bones, part of an ear, a kidney, a section of lung, and the ulnar bone from a forearm. The body parts all belonged to someone with type O blood, and it was estimated the age of the body parts was that they belonged to a person around 18 years old. And it looks like the police, they just found what remains of Dolores in that tank. Rockwell had murdered his wife and stepdaughter, dissected their bodies in the attic, disposed of his wife in the river, and his daughter in the septic tank. And he went on with his life, wooing other broads. 
Now, let's discuss why this guy wasn't tracked down and charged with murder. Well, the prosecutor didn't want to charge them. They didn't have DNA. Then to say for sure that it was the remains where there's a Dolores and Manzi. And O is a very common blood type. But seriously, I call bullshit on that. The human remains were found in the house. Pretty clearly, they belonged to Dolores. They matched her blood type and her age and were found in her home. And she was missing. Who the hell else would it be? Tell me who else it is in that septic tank. You got a legit person other than Dolores, and I'll listen to you that it might not be Dolores. But if you can't point somebody else who went missing with typo blood that's 18 years old from in that house, that's Dolores. But prosecutors are elected in Seattle, and the DA wanted to have a winning record. So he didn't want to take a case where the conviction was less than guaranteed. So a decision not to prosecute Raul Guy Rockwell for a double murder was made. When he was finally found, he was charged with a financial fraud scheme against his in-laws, but it looks like he entered into an agreement to pay the money back and avoided lengthy jail time. Was this decision to not prosecute Rockwell the right decision? No. No. He most likely killed two women and ripped their bodies apart. The women went missing. He lived with them. He lied about where they were. He is starting to look guilty, in my opinion. Then human remains were found in his home. Now he's looking even more guilty. I say charge him. There's some issues about whether or not there was a full body and some states this time, it was, I mean, there was once, at one time there was a white held belief that without a body, you couldn't prosecute. That is no longer the case. Now you just have to have evidence of murder. If you come into a room and it's saturated with blood, you don't even have to have body parts in there. But if you have enough blood in there that human life could not have existed after that loss of blood, someone can be charged with murder in that case. Even if you never find a body, you never find an arm, you never find a big toe, you don't find anything. But it's evidence of death. And they found a woman's uterus, part of her ear, part of her lung, part of her kidney, fingers, and ulnar bone in the septic tank. That's evidence of death. Today, this man would be charged. But not in 1960. This elected DA didn't want to take the risk. And that risk is, the failure to take the risk is going to prove fatal for Ruth Marie Terry. Because even if Rockwell hadn't been convicted, the mere tri trial itself could have made him a little infamous in the area, give him a little notoriety, and maybe his name would be well known enough that Ruth would never marry the man. You know, put the world on blast that this guy's potentially a murderous a-hole. Let's not be wife number three. But prosecutor, it's more important, his win-loss record, than justice. Some things never change. I say charge him. And I mean, they did, didn't do it, but during questioning, I feel like he basically confessed to the murders. Because the Seattle police, they finally tracked Rockwell down in New York, and he was detained and faced charges related to the financial fraud allegations. The Seattle investigators hop on the opportunity to question Rockwell about the disappearance of Manzi and Dolores. Rockwell admitted that he was, quote, morally guilty of Manzita's and Dolores' deaths, as he was the only person living with them and the only person who might have had an opportunity to commit these crimes. And when Rockwell was confronted with the inconsistencies in his statements to various people after the ladies disappeared, Rockwell said, quote, let's not be coy. How could those stories be true? You know, too, that they're both dead. 
Now, don't these statements sound like he's dancing around a confession, just towing the line? I mean, to me, I feel like it is a confession, but mm, it might be because I hate the guy. But then the NYPD bust in and interrupt this Seattle detective because the NYPD needs the room. Now, I don't know who the hell they were hauling into that room, but they better be bringing in somebody that's accused of killing at least three people to bounce Rockwell's ass out of there. Because how, who do you have that you need to question more? You need this room for so... This guy is suspected of killing two women. Give the Seattle the Seattle detectives the room for a minute, damn it. But anyway, Rockwell then gets a lawyer, clams up, and is extradited to Washington to face the fraud charges. The moment was lost. The detective had thought that Rockwell was right on the cusp of full-on confessing. But hell, I think it was close enough. Combined with the body parts in the septic tank, blood and tissue in the attic, Manzi's legs, and his inconsistent stories about where the ladies had gone, I think there was enough to charge him. I mean, there's definitely evidence of death. And today, he would have been charged. The days of avoiding a murder charge because the body has not been recovered are long gone, people. Rockwell is only convicted of the financial charges, but he agrees to repay the money to his in-laws and avoids jail time so he is free to go on with his life and continue to ruin the lives of others. Rockwell's whereabouts for the years after his disappearance, after the disappearance of Manzi and Dolores, aren't really clear. I think this time we'll be able to flesh that out more. And he was known as Guy Rockwell Maldivin by the time he married Ruth in Nevada in 1974. Maldivin, I think, is actually his original last name. But let's leave Rockwell behind for a while because I want to talk about Ruth. Ruth had grown up in Tennessee. She married when she was just 20, but the marriage didn't last. The couple divorced and Ruth went to work in a factory that made automobile parts. Ruth became pregnant and Ruth didn't have the financial ability to support a child and she made arrangements for her boss to adopt her newborn son. Later in 1972, Ruth would reach out to her son that had been adopted and try to meet him, but he was still young and not ready to meet his birth mother. And he decided not to meet her then. Only two years later is when she would be murdered. Later, when he was ready to meet his birth mother, he said he was sad to hear that no one knew where Ruth was. You know, it was a real, that was a missed opportunity. I mean, he couldn't know that. That's no fault of his, no fault of anybody's, but it's, it's sad. Didn't have to happen. Wouldn't have happened if somebody would have prosecuted Rockwell for murder. The earlier ones, but whatevs. <sighs> yeah, I did just say whatevs. Ugh, I hate that the DA didn't prosecute this guy. He killed two women. To go free to kill another. Ugh! Okay, after finalizing her son's adoption in 1958, Ruth moved out to California. And she had always wanted to move from Tennessee. And Ruth was described by her family members as a free spirit who was bright and loving. So I can see the draw of California in the 1950s, early, you know, late 1950s, early 60s to a woman like Ruth. You know, they just say Ruth oozed love. And California's got that upcoming peace, love type movement coming into it. Now, at some point after moving to California, Ruth met Rockwell. He was going by a different name by this time. I think Maldivin, that's his original last name. And on February 16th, 1974, the couple married in Nevada. The newlyweds went to Tennessee to visit Ruth's family and her relatives noticed how controlling Ruth's husband was and how when he was around, Ruth just didn't seem like herself. The couple would be married for only a few months before Rockwell would tell Ruth's parents that she had disappeared from their home in California. Ruth's family searched for her and hired a private investigator who led the family to believe that Ruth had joined a religious cult 
and to give up looking for her. Fourteen years after Manzi and Dolores disappeared, Rockwell's new wife, Ruth Marie, Ter Ruth Marie Terry, the third pretty redhead in his life that would be murdered, she was found dead in Massachusetts. Her name was unknown for decades, and she was simply called the Lady of the Dunes. She was a completely preventable victim. Ruth Marie Terry was a completely preventable victim. If the prosecutor had done his job out in Seattle, Ruth's family should be mad. Mad as hell. She fell for a con man who had murdered before and got away with it because a DA cared more about his win-loss record than pursuing the hard cases and putting dangerous murderers behind bars. When's your job? What is job security more important than the safety of women in the world? Ugh, disgusting. But everyone will say he did it. He won all of his cases. Yeah, because he took the easy ones. Now you might ask, how did Ruth end up in Massachusetts if she was living with her new husband in California? And I say, good question. I also say I don't have the answer. But we do know that Rockwell's father had owned property in Provincetown, near where Ruth's body was found. The father had died in 1967, seven years before Ruth's murder, but the property ownership shows that Rockwell once had ties to the community. What Rockwell and Ruth were doing in Massachusetts isn't clear, but we know that at least in the 1960s, Rockwell had ties to the area. And I wonder when I look back at Ruth's body and how she was found without her forearm. I wonder if Manzi's distinctive calves that led to the identification of the severed legs as Manzi's were a factor in the removal of Ruth's one forearm. Was there something distinctive about that arm that made the killer remove it, like a mole or scar? Perhaps a tattoo, though I don't think tattoos were really as common in the early 70s, as, not nearly as they are today. And Ruth, with her, the way she dressed, she didn't strike me as a tattoo person for back then. But it's just an idea. You know, is there something about that arm that made him think, I have to get rid of this so they never can find out who this woman is? I did see one picture of Ruth, but it looks like she has a dark mark, like a freckle near her one elbow. But there's, I only saw that in one photograph. And it could be, I mean, it could be a mark on the photograph that I'm looking at, you know, on Google. So I'm not sure. I'm just saying that's an idea. And I think it's important to, when you see these things, when you're trying to identify people, if there's small things like that, that might be something that you don't think of immediately, but something you could put in the description. Like, do you have somebody that's missing that has something, a body part that's missing? Do you, is there someone out there that has something on that body part that's also missing that might be an identifier and that's why it's removed? With the new advances in DNA testing, it's just beautiful beautiful to see science catch up with killers that thought they had got away with murder. Literally. I personally like to think about all those unidentified rapists and murderers who first heard the news about the Golden State Killer being identified through genealogical DNA testing. And these scumbags just absolutely shitting their pants when they heard the news. True crime aficionados everywhere rejoiced and rapists and killers tremored with fear. Because they knew their days were numbered. Genealogical DNA testing is so important in cold cases where there are unidentified remains. Even when it doesn't solve a crime or lead to an arrest. It took 46 years for us to learn that the Lady of the Dunes was, was Ruth Marie Terry. And a lot of her family is gone now. But upon learning that 
It was her aunt found in the dunes many years ago. Her great niece said her first name is Brittany. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce her last name because I don't want to offend her, but it's a beautiful last name that I think if somebody else said it, I'd be like, I like that. I just can't say it on my own and probably might not even be able to repeat it once I hear it once. Here's what I want to say what Brittany says about her great aunt. She says, it's, she says, it's very, very sad for us because she was up there for 50 years all by herself. And I can tell you, based on that one single sentence right there, and I've heard more of what Brittany has said, but that one single sentence shows you the love of the family that Ruth came from. That even, you know, her great niece years from now, that saddens the whole family to think that Ruth, Ruth was there without them. And that just tells you in a simplest, purest, most innocent, loving way, what a terrific, amazing family that she came from. It sounds to me like decades later, Ruth's family is still heartbroken by her death. Ruth Marie Terry was a woman who was loved by her family, a family that searched for her for years and always missed her. But to her loved ones, I don't want them to think that Ruth was ever truly alone in death. While Ruth was buried in a grave that didn't bear her name, and she was so far away from her home and family, she wasn't alone. She was in the hearts and thoughts of many people who wondered who she was and who had hurt her. I know that I have thought of her frequently over the years, and I know it's not the same as being with family, but she was in the thoughts and prayers of many. And I want her family to know that we thought about Ruth. And that does mean something because Ruth wasn't alone. She was in our thoughts and in our hearts. I'll be back next week with another case. See y'all later.